Did you know? Super Mario RPG was partially inspired by a Japanese children's toy. According to one of Mario RPG's directors, Yoshihiko Maekawa, the toy was similar to a laptop, and the buttons on the toy had to be pressed in time with music. Maekawa told IGN, It was that idea, having gameplay built around timing pressing buttons, that inspired me to hybridize these two genres to get a little bit of action and RPG into the same game. At the game's first meeting, Square presented Nintendo with an image of Mario on horseback, equipped with a sword and cape. It was essentially a fusion of Square's Final Fantasy style and Mario. The illustration didn't sit well with Mario creator Shigeru Miyamoto, who immediately said, that's not right. Miyamoto and one of Mario RPG's directors, Chihiro Fujioka, went back and forth on the issue. They discussed whether the game should have a classic RPG approach with swords and magic, or if Mario should use his iconic jump attacks and hammer. They couldn't decide between the two, so they let the fans decide. Fujioka told RetroGamer, We had to decide on Mario's fighting style. I said, Let's just decide his fighting style based on how much the audience applauds. Fujioka commented on both fighting styles, and the audience cheered more for Mario using jumps and hammers. Other drastic changes in direction took place early in production. One example is the pseudo-3D art style which didn't exist at all near the start of development. Mario RPG initially used a top-down map with a 2D-style Mario. The game received a pre-rendered isometric overhaul after some experimentation with 3D. There were also plans to include a shape-shifting boss character in the second half of the game. Code for the villain was even programmed into the game, and several sketches were drawn. Though the boss was cut, the ideas behind it could have influenced the fight against Smithy. Originally, the team wanted Mario to use devices that would impact devices in other parts of the world, causing a type of domino effect. Chain reaction was a key phrase the team used during development. This eventually led to the game's action events, where light platforming and other real-time set pieces occurred throughout the game. Speaking of which, the team struggled to balance the amount of action. They wondered how much traditional Mario gameplay could be present in an RPG without it feeling out of place. Though production was sometimes difficult, Square and Nintendo worked well together. Ex-Square president Hisashi Suzuki approached Nintendo about making a sequel before Mario RPG was even released. But due to Square leaning away from Nintendo in favor of the PlayStation, a similar collaboration never took place on the Nintendo 64. Luigi was planned to be in the game, as seen in an early issue of Nintendo Power. Many other elements were changed or scrapped during development. Some examples are the Chancellor looking gray and much older, Frog Fuchs's island being closer to the land and therefore not accessed via Tadpole Bridge, an encounter with Bowser in his keep at an unknown time, an unused underwater battle stage, and a lot of enemies, most of which were reskinned versions of existing foes. There's also a hidden boss named Culex, who is an homage to Square's Final Fantasy series. Though he isn't from Final Fantasy himself, he embodies many traits of the franchise. He has a sprite for both overworld and battle like the Final Fantasy enemies, and his in-battle sprite doesn't change when attacking or being struck. Culex's in-battle sprite also looks more 2D than 3D. A remixed version of Final Fantasy IV's boss battle music plays during the fight, and the Final Fantasy victory fanfare is heard after it. Culex's Japanese name is also Kuri Sutara, meaning Crystaller. This isn't the only nod to Final Fantasy. Caesar Dragon gets his name from an unused Final Fantasy super boss. The unused boss is called Caesar Dragon in the game's ROM, but both enemies are called Kaiser Dragon in Japanese. The boss was eventually used in the Game Boy Advance port of Final Fantasy VI and was renamed Kaiser Dragon in the West. The enemy Bahamut is a reference to the Final Fantasy summon of the same name. This isn't true for the Japanese version, however, where the enemy has a Yoshi-inspired name, Doshi. Final Fantasy isn't the only game referenced in Super Mario RPG. 
both The Legend of Zelda's Link and Metroid's Samus have cameo appearances. Link can be found in the Rose Town Inn, and Samus can be seen in Toadstool's Castle. Samus is also featured as an action figure in Booster Tower. Models of Captain Falcon and Samurai Goro's vehicles from F-Zero, as well as an R-Wing from Star Fox, can be found in Barrel Volcano. The Axum Rangers are a parody of the heroes from Super Sentai, a long-running Japanese show which was the basis for the Power Rangers franchise. Translator Ted Woolsey originally wanted to squeeze more references into the game. Woolsey asked if he could name Punchinello James Bomb in reference to James Bond, but management shot down his request. A remnant of the idea is seen when Punchinello introduces himself. The name's Nello, Punchinello. Boshi's Japanese name is Washi. This makes him Yoshi's Wadui counterpart, similar to how Wario is Mario's counterpart. Bowser's victory pose was also changed in the English game, as it previously resembled the up yours gesture. Lakitu's Japanese name is Jugem. His bus features the initials JB, which remained unchanged in the English version. They simply stand for Jugem's bus. In the Japanese version of the game, going into the menu screen and entering down, up, right, left, select, start, select, start, B will make Toad appear. He'll say, secret code found. Now let's take a look at your status. Wow, nothing's changed at all. But what about your experience points? Nope, nothing's changed. There's no point in looking for other codes, and the result will always be the same. I'll play with you as many times as you like, though. Secret code, end. In the English version, Gino introduces himself as heart, note, exclamation mark, question mark. In the Japanese game, however, Gino's name is introduced as a completely unpronounceable series of symbols he refers to as Star Language. Gino was a surprise hit among fans, and even grew a cult following. Mario RPG's developers didn't know about this fondness until years later, presumably due to a language barrier and the obscurity of early internet. Fujioka told RetroGamer, I only found out about Gino's popularity later, so I got him to make a reappearance in Superstar Saga. Did you know? The original Donkey Kong Country was planned to have an opening cutscene. Rare designer Greg Mayles shared some of the game's documents over Twitter, one of which would have told the events of the game's story. A storyboard showed Kremlings putting Diddy in a barrel and stealing the banana horde, with the hole leading to the horde made by a crusher breaking in. This was explained in the final game through the instruction manual, and the cutscene later made its way into the remake on Game Boy Advance. A document dating back to August 1993 showed a wide range of concepts for the game's animal buddies. Ideas included a flying pig, a mole who'd dig underground, and an owl who'd give out information. A name sheet from March 94 shows the latter two were named Hooter and Miney. Neither made the final cut, though a similar pig design later appeared in Donkey Kong Land with the hogwash enemy. The sheet also shows Candy Kong had alternate names Blondie Kong and Honey Kong, and that prior to country, the game was then known as Donkey Kong's Monkey Mayhem. Other design docs showed keys playing a role in unlocking extras. Animal buddies would be locked in cages and could only be freed with a key that resembled the animal, and the same applied for extra lives. They thought about doing this for Diddy Kong, then known as Junior, but decided it was better if he was readily available. Barrels were used in country being a carryover from the arcade series that felt appropriate in the new universe. Donkey Kong's tie also came from the suggestion of Nintendo veteran Shigeru Miyamoto and debuted in Donkey Kong on Game Boy, released several months before country. Males also expanded on how a typical level was made. The team would think of ideas for enemies and features and draw them out on post-it notes before putting it all together with items and bonuses. Level concepts shared included Country's first level, Jungle Hijinks, as well as Toxic Tower and Animal Antics from Country 2. The game's music also had a similar process starting off. When composer David Wise was brought on for the soundtrack, he believed it was just a temporary job and someone at Nintendo would eventually do the score. For his demo, he made three pieces of music to present to Rare co-founder Tim Stamper. Liking all three, Tim asked Wise to combine the 
the samples into one track, with that theme becoming DK Island Swing, used in the jungle levels. Contrary to popular belief, Wise wasn't the sole composer for the project. Evelyn Novakovic also helped with the score, and one track was adapted from Robin Beanland, a track originally for Killer Instinct that became the theme for Funky Kong. According to Rare, DKC had the most man hours put into a single video game at the time, spanning 22 years across the development team. It was also the first Nintendo product launched in the UK before all other regions, released on November 18th, and by 4pm the following day it already raked in 1 million pounds. To this day it stands as Rare's best-selling game and the third best-seller for the Super Nintendo, second only to Super Mario All-Stars and Mario World. The game had a marketing budget of 3.76 million dollars, and one product to come from it was a VHS called DKC Exposed, sent to subscribers of Nintendo Power. Featured in the video for a few seconds is Michael Kelbaugh, then product tester for Nintendo who would later go on to become the current president of Retro Studios, an eventual developer for the Donkey Kong series. In honor of DKC2's 20th anniversary, Males once again shared early concepts he had for the sequel. One had the character Clubba as boss of the Lost World before being swapped with K. Rule, with some of his attacks being used by the World 2 boss Cudgel in the final game. Another was to find an exclusive cheat code in Cranky's museum to be used for the SNES port of Killer Instinct. The museum still features a KI arcade cabinet, plus a poster of Fighter Chief Thunder. Cranky's tent in the Kremland Overworld map also reads KI here, surrounded by several Killer Instinct machines. When the team decided to give Diddy Kong a girlfriend, they were concerned the established DK Candy Kong pairing would clash with it. So the two were stashed away for the sequel, with Candy being completely absent. Dixie Kong was also known as Diddy Ann throughout most of the game's pre-production. And much like when trying to pinpoint a title for the game, there were many potential names for Dixie that males referred to as of mixed quality. Names ranged from Didette, Darlene, and Didi to less serious names like Dicky Licky, Demigod, and Dem girls, they all love me. Banana animals were another concept males drew up, serving as a way to score additional bananas. The banana bird did make its way into DKC3, though they served an entirely different purpose, and the game was handled by another internal team at Rare. Though sold to Microsoft come 2002, Rare was still permitted to make games for Nintendo's handhelds as Microsoft had no stake in that market. As such, they were allowed to remake the Country Trilogy on Game Boy Advance starting in 2003. In 2011, an ex-Rare employee under the pseudonym Stampers got in touch with fansite DKVine and talked about the trilogy's development. All three games were completely coded from scratch. The original game assets were on floppy disks, though Rare could barely make out the file formats of what they still had. To get the look of the originals on the advance, the artists used SNES emulators and went through each game frame by frame, taking snapshots along the way. They added extra frames not present in the originals to smooth out certain animations and had redone all backgrounds from the ground up. Another issue was getting the physics to match the SNES counterparts one to one. Stampers expanded on this, saying, There'd be times where QA reports would come back saying something like, In the original, you could do a rolling jump off the edge of this ledge and reach that ledge, but you can't on the GBA one. So we'd adjust it until it worked, then get a bunch of reports saying, you can reach this area by rolling and jumping, and you're not supposed to. They also addressed problems of the original controls, notably with Ellie the Elephant and the Toboggan from Country 3, as well as the overall flow of the level design. The handheld team felt like they truly got the hang of it by the release of the third game, and thought about following up with a 2.5D sequel on the Nintendo DS, tentatively titled Donkey Kong Country 4. Though Stampers had said it was nothing more than just 
just an idea they threw out there, opting to do a remake of Diddy Kong Racing instead. For Country 3's remake, an entirely new soundtrack was done by David Wise, with the originals done primarily by Novakovic. The team were hoping to have both soundtracks available in the game, but it proved to be too much work and little cartridge space by the end of the project. Amidst the new content, it also features several boat mini-games at Funky's Rentals, all of which are based on levels of Rare's NES game Cobra Triangle. The games destroy, disarm, protect, and race are closely structured to their inspirations, and debug text even refers to the music track for the games as Cobra Track. In this episode, we'll be exploring trivia for a variety of titles from the 16-bit worldwide hit, the Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or Super Famicom, was the follow-up to Nintendo's first major delve into the gaming hardware market. Coming after the NES, the Super Nintendo had a lot to live up to, and it certainly had its fair share of hype leading up to its release. Nintendo's competition had begun to pave the way for the next generation in Japan, with Sega's Mega Drive and NEC's PC Engine having already been released. Launching on November 21st, 1990, Nintendo seemed almost held back with the approach to launching the SNES on their home turf. Despite the popularity of the Super Nintendo's predecessor, the company shipped only 300,000 SNES units to retail, an incredibly small figure considering the audience waiting in anticipation. Being a shock to literally no one, all 300,000 units had sold within hours of the system's launch. To give more gravity to this small figure, at the end of its life cycle, the SNES sold 50 million units. The original NES had sold around 30 million units in the US alone by 1991, a figure which demonstrates Nintendo's strong insight into how much they knew their consoles can sell. The SNES, at the time of release in Japan, had 1.5 million pre-orders, and Nintendo had made the decision to inform the public of the scarcity of the much sought-after console, shipping only 20% of consoles that people had already paid for, leading to major panic amongst consumers. The day of release, November 21st, was a Wednesday, leading to a significant number of people opting to ditch work to get their hands on this rare item. With so many consumers rushing to the streets of Tokyo to get their hands on the system, the city became overcrowded and cost the Japanese economy millions of dollars. Looking at this, it's hard to deny that the system was extremely popular. One of the most popular titles on the system was Super Mario World. The game became so loved that it actually had its own anime adaptation, titled Mario Toyoshi no Balkanland, meaning Mario and Yoshi's Adventureland. Released exclusively for Japanese audiences in 1992, the 28-minute animation was created for Bandai's VHS system called the Terabiko. The Terabiko was a sort of interactive VHS device, released in the US as CNC Videophone. The device had a similar appearance to that of a telephone, and was connected directly to a TV or VCR, and had four color-coded buttons. Tapes for the system would send out encoded audio signals which would be picked up by the phone to recognize the user's response, providing outcomes for both correct and incorrect answers. The animation's events differ from those of the game, and have Mario asking the viewer to answer several simple questions aimed towards young children. Other Mario games on the Super Nintendo also have interesting tidbits, such as Mario World's sequel, Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island. Nintendo's North American advertisements in this era were known to be edgy and crude, but this style was arguably taken too far for Yoshi's Island. One commercial for the original Super Nintendo game featured a man at a restaurant eating enough food until he literally explodes. Besides being disgusting, it's also believed that this is a reference to the Mr. Creosote sketch from the 1983 movie Monty Python the meaning of life. 
Another Mario game for the SNES is Super Mario All-Stars, which was an enhanced compilation of Super Mario Bros., Super Mario Bros. 2, Super Mario Bros. 3, and the Lost Levels. In the Mario 2 portion of the game, the final boss was originally going to be slightly different. The Wart boss fight was originally going to have the player throw tomato projectiles like in Super Mario Bros. 2. However, these were replaced with peppers in the final game, with the tomato sprite still being present but unused in the game's data. Another huge Nintendo franchise that dominated the Super Nintendo was Donkey Kong with the Donkey Kong Country subseries. According to Country's director Greg Mayles in a discussion with Girard the Completionist Khalil, Cranky's infamous line, I did this using one life and I took less than an hour, during the credit sequence was the last remnant of a scrapped mode. In this mode, the player would be able to play as Cranky Kong, who would be much slower and perform poorly in general compared to Donkey Kong or Diddy Kong. This makes it all the more fitting that Cranky Kong eventually became playable himself in Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze for the Nintendo Wii U and Switch. Several animated features were adapted into games, such as Disney's The Lion King. This game was very popular with gamers, selling over 1 million units in the United States alone. The original film score had been composed by Hans Zimmer, which was adapted to the SNES audio chips by Frank Klepacki. Hans Zimmer's studio was actually so impressed with the game's audio that they sent a letter to Klepacki, complimenting him on the soundtrack for the SNES release. One Super Nintendo game didn't receive the same positive response from Pixar, however. Uniracers, released as Unirally in PAL territories, was published by Nintendo, and created by DMA Design, who would later go on to become Rockstar Games. The game has players race riderless unicycles on a 2D side-scrolling track, performing stunts in order to gain speed. It wasn't long after the game's release that DMA Design was sued by Pixar for allegedly copying Pixar's designs for the game's unicycle and their concept from the 1987 short Red's Dream. DMA Design lost their lawsuit to the animation firm, forcing Nintendo to halt production of future Uniracer cartridges, meaning that only the game's initial run was ever sold, totaling just 300,000 units. Commenting on the matter with Nintendo Life, developer Mike Daly stated, We modeled the unicycle exactly based on a real-life unicycle. The problem with Pixar was that they seemed to think that any computer-generated unicycle was owned by them. They took footage from Red's Dream and compared it to Unirally and the unicycles were virtually the same. This isn't a big surprise, as there's not a lot of ways you can bring life to a unicycle without looking like the one Pixar did. The judge, being the moron that he was, agreed. While it was a unicycle and it did look similar, I think he should have looked at the game as a whole. If he had, then he would have noticed that the game was a completely different environment and the character of the unicycle just wasn't the same. From one, what I suppose you could call a sports game, to another, considered one of the best basketball games on the system, NBA Jam actually hides a dirty little secret. Developer Mark Tamell, a self-proclaimed die-hard Detroit Pistons fan, admitted in 2008 to ESPN that he'd actually rigged the game in his beloved team's favor. When asked if Scottie Pippen of the Bulls would have reduced stats when playing against certain teams, Tamell stated, It's true, but only when the Bulls played the Pistons. If there was a close game and anyone on the Bulls took a last-second shot, we wrote special code in the game so that they would average out to be bricks. There was a big competition back in the day between the Pistons and the Bulls, and since I was always a big Pistons fan, that was my opportunity to level the playing field. Yet another sports game with a secret within its code is NHL 96, which was developed by Tiburon Entertainment and published by EA. A secret message was included at the beginning of the title's ROM data aimed towards hackers and demo scene coders, reading, 
If you're a talented programmer or artist, please fax us your resume to 407-862-4077. Although formal education is a plus, it's not required. This message is directed to all you hackers and demo coders out there who might be looking through our ROMs. We have good benefits and pay competitive wages. We understand that while your resume may not reflect jobs programming, that you may still be very talented and the opportunity may not have been available. In this case, we ask you to mail us your demos or examples of work you have done. Tiburon Entertainment, CO. Hey, I'm good and I want a job. 900 Fox Valley Drive. Suite 202, Longwood, Florida. If you grew up with classic games, you will know all too well the pain of progressing deep into a game and finding out it's time to stop playing, only to realize the game has no save files or password system. Save features for cartridge games make use of small batteries on the game's circuit board, and with batteries only having so much juice in their lifespan, the save feature of many games will no longer function without replacing that battery. One player, Wanikun, made use of a different method for keeping their progress, simply not turning off the system for 20 years. The game Wanakun played for so long is Umihara Kowase, released exclusively in Japan for the Super Famicom before releasing on Steam internationally many years later. The cartridge and console were both left on, with the exception of one occasion when Wanakun had to move home. Before his work on the Zelda series, Eiji Ayanuma worked as a graphic designer at Nintendo. He managed to get an interview with the company after graduating, and was able to show examples of his work directly to Zelda creator Shigeru Miyamoto. Ayanuma managed to impress, and was put to work making pixel art for Nintendo games. Before he got the chance to work on a Zelda game, Ayanuma had the opportunity to direct his own Nintendo title. This game was Marvelous Another Treasure Island. Marvelous was released towards the end of 1996, and while it's easy to draw clear similarities between Marvelous and the Zelda series, their differences become clear almost immediately. Rather than focusing on action, the game has more of an emphasis on puzzles. Combining popular gameplay mechanics of its time, the game feels like a combination of Zelda and The Lost Vikings, with PC adventure game elements mixed in. Taking control of three characters in a team named by the player, the aim is to solve various puzzles and traverse further across the world. To do this, it's required to use all three characters as both a team and individually, utilizing their unique traits and items. At any time while walking around, the player can investigate items both near and far with the use of a cursor. This often changes the view to a more detailed first-person perspective, where more information can be given to the player. This can range from talking to characters or investigating objects. During these screens, it's also possible to use items or make use of combined team actions to proceed. This can vary from positioning characters to lift or push objects that lay in their way, or performing unique actions to suit their situation, such as stacking to reach things. Items can also change up gameplay. For example, one character will obtain a baseball glove and ball, which can hit various items and enemies, something which up to this point in the game is not possible. The game's plot follows three young boys, Dion, Jack, and Max. Dion is a heart of gold rascal who tends to lead the group, Jack is considered to be the intellectual in the group, and Max is the strongest. The trio are camping with their class on a mysterious island when they uncover a disturbance. A legendary pirate, Captain Maverick, has hidden treasure on the island known as Marvelous, which can only be found by those willing to complete supposedly unsolvable puzzles. The boys use their wits to prove the legend wrong, while also discovering a band of pirates who want the treasure for themselves. While sounding particularly simple, a variety of bizarre and imaginative situations unfold throughout the game.
Before the game's full retail release, another game in the series was published through Nintendo's Satellaview system. BS Marvelous Time Athletic came out at the start of 1996, followed by the game's full retail release. The retail game was followed by yet another Satellaview game called BS Marvelous Camp Arnold. These Satellaview releases act more as side quests to the main game. Rather than follow the standard style of adventure gameplay, the titles work more as a children's activity known as stamp rallies in Japan. The goal is to visit a list of locations on a sheet of paper, and use various stamps located at each one to mark them off. The Satellaview games also made use of a system known as Soundlink, which streams the soundtrack to the console rather than storing it locally. While this has led to issues in the past with Satellaview titles losing their soundtracks, old recordings of the BS Marvelous games can be found online by YouTube user 1983ParrotHead. The Marvelous games also made use of the Soundlink system to provide voice acting to these side games. During an interview with Spike regarding a link between worlds, Ayanuma mentioned how Marvelous came to be. Ayanuma was inspired by A Link to the Past, and credits the title as sparking his interest in game development. He felt that changing the game world by cutting grass and bushes, even for a short period, was something special. This experience led to his work on Marvelous. Marvelous's resemblance to Zelda was so apparent that after seeing the project, Miyamoto proclaimed, if you really want to make a Zelda game that bad, why don't you just actually make a Zelda game? The next title Ayanuma would help design was Ocarina of Time. When asked if Ayanuma would ever revisit Marvelous or consider publishing the title outside of Japan, he stated, It would be cool to have it on the Virtual Console, but we'd also have to localize the game, so it might be kind of difficult. And we'd have to do it with superimposed subtitles, because we can't actually remake the game at this point and actually get the data. Despite this, a fan translation of the game was created by Dakar and Tashi. This patch has been updated several times, and its latest release has totally converted all Japanese into English. This includes graphical changes, as well as the dialogue. Ayanuma's statement of not being able to edit the title is of course proven false by the mere existence of this patch, but his reluctance is still understandable. Virtual console releases, which were originally exclusive to Japan, tend to keep their original Japanese script. This has very few exceptions, though games like Monster World 4 did receive a full translation. The reason for the game's lack of release outside of Japan is likely due to the Nintendo 64's release. Marvelous Another Treasure Island was published in 1996, after the Nintendo 64 had already been released, and, as a result, a full translation and release on a dying Super Nintendo would have been an unwise move. With that said, the game was featured in Nintendo Power, and received a full four pages of coverage. In this article, Dion was given a different name, and was instead called Dino. This could indicate that plans were made for the game to be taken overseas. Another interesting aspect of this story is that Nintendo may have also had plans to continue the series. Navi Trackers, a side game available in the Japanese release of Zelda Four Swords Adventures, plays similarly to the original Satellaview Marvelous games. It sees the players competing to collect stamps before their opponents. This side game even has voice acting. Darkling Kale from the cutting room floor discovered unused data within this segment of the game, which reveals some very interesting information. The data includes character icons of Dion in various colors, an unused render of Ms. Gina with some luck rocks which would have appeared on the TV to show the players where each stamp would be, and exact replicas of maps found within BS Marvelous Time Athletic. 
The game we're covering today comes from a company best known as the creators of Pokemon, Game Freak. We've already covered one of their titles on this channel with Mario and Wario, but they had another game for the Super Nintendo that was never published in America. That game is Bushi Selayuren Futali no Yusha, which roughly translates as Warriors of the Blue Dragon Legend The Two Heroes. Before talking about why the product never came to the West, let's take a look at the game itself. Published in 1997 by T&Esoft, Game Freak's Bushi Selayuden is a unique blend of RPG genres. The player takes control of the game's protagonist in a fantasy-themed version of feudal Japan. While out adventuring, the hero encounters a small pink flying monster, Woku. Woku was once a girl, but has been transformed. It's her goal to find a way of reversing this transformation and becoming her true self once again. When the young swordsman's house is destroyed and his sister, Nami, is kidnapped by monsters, he seeks out to rescue her. The game's draw is in its unique gameplay. The player controls the hero through several different perspectives. These include an overhead-style RPG, like that of The Legend of Zelda. From this perspective, you are able to navigate the world, visit towns, cut down grass, discover treasures, and find dungeons. Talking to residents will initiate a first-person perspective, allowing you to look around the environment that surrounds the person you wish to speak with. And finally, entering a battle or dungeon will start a side-scrolling battle phase. While the game appears to be an action game at first glance, this isn't actually the case. Battles are turn-based, and will only continue if the player moves or attacks. But rather than using a typical menu to work through these screens, the hero is actually directly controlled like a typical action game. Battles begin by either attacking an enemy on the overhead perspective, giving the player an advantage over them, or by being ambushed by the enemy, granting them an initial first strike. After a certain period of time, once the player is strong enough, weaker enemies can be wiped out directly from the overhead map. During battles, the player takes control of not only the hero, but also Woku. The hero is able to attack using a variety of sword techniques, or he can use a magical shield to defend himself. The shield is also capable of firing a bullet by using some of the player's Kokolo meter, or spirit meter, but it will only deal half of the player's standard damage. Woku is able to assist the player by lifting him into the air for a short distance, allowing him to attack enemies that are out of reach and navigate the stage. Woku can also distract some enemies and prevent them from hitting the protagonist. If knocked out, Woku can be revived after a number of turns or at the end of each fight. She is also capable of attacking enemies directly, although she will also receive damage for every turn that she is attacking. The hero also has an ability known as the Heart Eye, allowing the player to learn more about the strengths of enemies as well as being able to find hidden paths. As the game progresses, the player will learn skills that will help to attack larger quantities of enemies or deal greater damage. The main goal of the game is to destroy the Tower of the Ocean God. The Ocean God was a god that turned evil, creating a tower which connected both heaven and earth. This created a path between the world of gods and the world of men, allowing for demons to invade the planet. To destroy the tower, the player must obtain Magatama. Magatama are small curved beads which were treated as ceremonial and religious symbolic objects in the Kofun period of Japan. Visually, they appear to look similar to one half of the yin-yang symbol. Each battle has a turn limit, indicated at the start of each fight. Winning the battle within the allotted number of turns provides the player of Magatama. The quicker the fight ends, the more Magatama obtained. The most striking part of the game is its art, which is reminiscent of the Pokemon series. This is likely because Bushi Selayuden released just after the original Pokemon games, and it had Pokemon artists Ken Sugimori and Motofumi Fujiwara work on the title. Alongside them was Pokemon composer Junichi Masuda, who worked on the game's soundtrack. And lastly, the game was designed and conceptualized by Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri. 
The game was originally announced under the name Magatama Densetsu, translated as Magatama Legend, and several magazines claimed that the game was to be published by Enix. It appears at some point during development, Enix dropped out of the contract due to concerns with the title's direction, and so a deal was made with T&Esoft instead. It was also published around the end of the Super Nintendo's relevancy outside of Japan, with the Nintendo 64 having been released around the same time. The game's lack of localization is probably linked to this late publishing date, as support for the Super Nintendo had begun to fizzle out by this point. Being an RPG, the game is also dialogue-heavy. This would have increased the cost of translating the game, and made the possibility of localization even more remote. It's also worth noting that Pokémon still hadn't reached the West by this point, and Game Freak weren't the internationally recognized developers that they are today. Surprisingly, there is also no fan translation available online at the time of this video going live. The life simulation genre requires players to raise a character they don't directly control. In the 90s, the genre was popularized with digital pet toys like Tamagotchi and Digimon, but even before then, it had its place in the gaming world. Life simulations, where the player raises a specific character, were coined Raising Sims, and have been popular in Japan for some time. The long-running Princess Maker series is a good example of a raising sim, and requires the character to raise a daughter to become a princess. Enix took this raising sim concept and created a Super Famicom game, built around a story of peace called Wonder Project J. Wonder Project J, Machine Boy Pino, was published by Enix in 1994 for the Super Famicom. It was developed by Evo Search for Eden developers, who left Technos and formed a studio called Almanic. Graphically, the art style can be compared to the works of Studio Ghibli, or early Japanese anime. It pushes the Super Famicom to its limits, and features a huge array of animations and actions that can be performed by the mechanical boy. The game has you watch over this mechanical child, whose default name is Pino, accompanied by a fairy-slash-interface robot named Tinker. In the game's world, robots known as Gaijin have lived amongst humans for the last 50 years. Contempt has been steadily increasing among the two groups, and the few human sympathizers of Gaijin are often arrested. Our young boy's creator, Geppetto Lamarck, is one of these human sympathizers. Dreaming of a perfect Gaijin that can live as a human, Lamarck created a young robot. He had only one task left, to fill all the boy's heart circuits. This would teach the boy what it is to be a human, and awaken the fabled J-Circuit. Before Geppetto finishes his task, however, the government intervenes and takes him away, leaving the boy to fend for himself. The player is tasked to help raise the boy as a human and fulfill the old inventor's dream. As the young Gaijin is almost indistinguishable from a real human, many of the people on the island mistake him for one of their own. Early on, we're also introduced to the Gaijin of the island, who face discrimination from the humans. The player uses Tinker to instruct the boy on how to use objects correctly, as well as helping him grow his abilities and understanding of the world. In many cases, he won't understand what's being instructed, and will attempt to eat live chickens whole or worship objects for no good reason. To combat his naturally boisterous actions, the player can praise him for using items correctly. If he acts in a manner that the player doesn't like, they can scold him, teaching him not to do it again. By teaching with care and tough love, the player and Pino develop a shared bond. 
Encounters throughout the island challenge the boy's understanding of the world by testing if he's capable of solving basic problems and performing tasks for the other residents. These tasks encompass a number of skills and personality traits, including picking locks on chests and even fighting. The player must adjust their mentality when dealing with each situation, having the child's kindness stats be high when dealing with animals, but less so when entering competitions. While the game's pacing is quite slow due to continuously training the child, there are a few segments with more action. The title has dungeons that the player must help Pino navigate, instructing him to attack where needed or preventing him from walking into traps. The player can purchase equipment from an item shop in town to assist with training, such as weapons and books of increasing difficulty. Items can also be fed to the boy to restore his health, grant him with temporary buffs, or completely alter his abilities. The player's overall goal is to ease hostility between humans and gaijin, forming personal connections between yourself, the child, and the co-inhabitants of Corlo Island. With multiple endings, Wonder Project J provides many options for how the player can work to solve this problem. We've decided to keep some of the game's key plot points out of this video, as we're sure many will want to seek this game out for themselves. Whilst Wonder Project J never saw a release in the West, it was covered in Superplay magazine in the UK. The game's story is often compared to Pinocchio and Peter Pan, with similarities between Tinker and Tinkerbell, the child and Pinocchio, and of course between Geppetto from the game and Pinocchio. However, the Superplay magazine refers to Dr. Geppetto as Dr. Geppetto Lamarck. The Geppetto name comes from the fan translation team Whacked Hacks. The lack of localization outside of Japan possibly comes from Wonder Project J's themes, requiring the player to sometimes smack the boy to teach him wrong from right. Corporal punishment was falling out of fashion in the US at the time, partly due to research indicating it was more harmful to child development than previously thought. The game is also dialogue heavy and could be costly to translate. Any additional costs would reduce the game's chances of financial success. Aside from these possibilities, we couldn't find sources for why Wonder Project J never came to the West. However, as the game received a sequel that also remained a Japan exclusive, we can only assume the decision wasn't influenced by lack of sales or interest. The Super Nintendo had a library of wonderfully odd games, as well as its share of releases that shaped the gaming world as a whole. Several titles showed everyone that games didn't need to be basic arcade titles anymore. They could instead be long adventures that include interesting stories and have in-depth worlds that are more than just a background. Today we'll be looking at a game released towards the end of the Super Nintendo's life cycle, Gunpool, Gunman's Proof. Gunpool was published by ASCII in 1997 and developed by Lennar, a relatively unknown company. Their most notable release was Deadly Towers on the NES in 1986, which received great commercial success with mixed reviews at the time. Gunpool is a clear-cut clone of The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, with a few minor changes. The change that stands out the most is the way the player attacks. Instead of close-range swordplay, the player fires a pistol at enemies. With the use of the shoulder buttons, the player can strafe, locking in a certain direction while shooting. They can also punch, but doing so isn't very effective. Bullets allow for quicker attacks at longer distances with no noticeable difference in damage to a punch. The game also has a screen that's almost identical to A Link to the Past's inventory screen. However, instead of items, it lists the player's available skills. 
power-up items are found throughout the game, including different types of temporary guns and a carrot. We'll explain that later. Another contrast to A Link to the Past is that the game uses a live system. If the player dies, they will be revived on the spot with their health fully recovered. If the player runs out of lives, they'll get a game over and respawn in the player's home village. The player can also find chests in dungeons. The treasures inside are converted into points once a dungeon is finished. Completing the dungeon quickly or with a lot of life remaining will award even more points. As the player is using guns and doesn't have any sort of shield, attacks can be actively dodged by using the crouch button. This lets players avoid gunfire by ducking underneath bullets, though the player can't fire while crouched. The player can also gain special skills, like a charge shot used by holding down the attack button. The game's story takes place in the year 1880. Two meteors crash into the Earth on a small island near the western coast of North America. However, nobody seems to care. It isn't until some time later, when monsters appear and attack villages, that people start to worry. After the monsters attack their victims, they drop crests inscribed with the word Demiseed, which comes to describe the monsters themselves. One day, the game's protagonist, a young farm boy who lives in the only town on the island, finds a crash-landed miniature UFO. Two mini-aliens emerge from the ship, known as Zero and Garo. They inform the player that an intergalactic criminal named Demi has escaped justice and is hiding on the island, and that they are in fact space sheriffs. Zero then possesses the player's body, granting him the power to fight the monsters. Together, Zero and the player must destroy Demi, thereby restoring peace to the island. During the adventure, the player meets up with Mono, another alien who crash-landed while hunting Demi. Unfortunately, Mono possessed the body of a horse named Roboton and is unable to escape it. He joins the player in his quest and can be summoned by collecting a carrot, allowing the player to ride him and become temporarily invincible. Graphically, it's clear that the game's backgrounds are directly influenced by A Link to the Past, but with character sprites closer to the minimalistic style of Mother 3. The comparisons between Zelda and Gunpool are made even more obvious by the dungeon map screen. As you can see, the screen is almost exactly the same as Zelda's. Altogether, Gunpool takes a lot from A Link to the Past, but it at least has a unique approach with its theme and gun-based gameplay. Notable names attached to the project include Isami Nakagawa, who worked on the game's packaging artwork. Nakagawa became popular with his work on Poguri, a Japanese manga series. Also attached to the title was Akihito Tomisawa, a designer and scenario writer who previously worked at Game Freak. Several years after Gunpool's release, he mentioned his dissatisfaction with the final game, saying, Inspired by my favorite Western dramas, I wanted to make a game based on Mr. Isami Nakagawa's character. However, there were several obstacles, such as communication with the company programming the game didn't go well, and it was commercialized without my consent. My ideas are reflected in a part of the basic idea, but the final release is completely different from what I had initially intended. I was deeply aware of the difficulty of making games in a freelance position. If given permission, it's a game I would remake. The game was likely never localized in the West because of its late publishing date, but there might be another, more sad reason, as it seems Gumpel was in fact Lenar's last developed game. It's possible it sold too poorly for the company to remain active in the gaming market. If the company was struggling financially, publishing the title internationally was not an option. From the sounds of the quote from Tomisawa, it's possible they were only just able to release the game commercially in Japan, as the game appears to have been rushed out without Tomisawa's consent. Luckily, the game received a fan translation from Aeon Genesis.
Anyone who's familiar with Nintendo's Mario knows that the plumber has a plethora of games under his belt. Since the franchise is well known and easy to sell, Nintendo uses Mario to experiment with different genres and any new ideas they might be cooking up. That's why when Super Nintendo was given a mouse peripheral in 1991, Mario was chosen to demonstrate the peripheral's capabilities in Mario Paint. Although many Westerners got to play Mario Paint, Nintendo created another mouse-based Mario game that never made it to the West, Mario & Wario. Before we go into why the game was never localised, let's take a look at the game itself. Mario & Wario follows the story of Mario and his friends exploring a magical forest. Their goal is to find a fairy which is said to bring happiness to those who meet it. Whilst in the woods trying to confirm the legend, Luigi gets lost from the group, and so they split up to try and find him. During the search, Wario drops a bucket from the sky which becomes stuck on Mario's head. Wanda, the magical fairy that Mario and his friends are searching for, decides to intervene and help them out. Unable to remove the bucket due to being too weak, Wanda takes it upon herself to help guide Mario and his friends through a series of puzzles to help reunite them with the lost. Luigi. The gameplay revolves around using a mouse to control Wanda. Clicking on objects has Wanda interact with them, allowing the player to create safe passage for the characters. The main aim is to have them meet up with Luigi at the end of each stage, who has the strength to remove the bucket. Because of several key elements, the gameplay is often compared to the Mario vs Donkey Kong series. Characters walk forward on their own volition, so making sure they don't walk into danger is important. Each character has their own set speed, with Mario being faster than Peach and Yoshi being faster than Mario. The game includes a bonus stage at the end of each world, where the player must use Wanda to hit Wario with a hammer. Each time Wario is hit, the player earns a coin. As you can see, there isn't a whole lot to this game that would make it particularly complicated to play, but levels do get progressively more difficult as time goes on. The game gradually introduces new blocks, includes additional enemies, and makes levels more complex, requiring the player to multitask efficiently. Mario & Wario was designed by Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri, and was developed by the team at Game Freak. This makes Mario & Wario the second title Game Freak ever created with Nintendo, after after Yoshi on the NES. Their next time developing for Nintendo would be for the renowned Pokemon games. In fact, Mario & Wario shares the same composer as Pokemon, Junichi Masuda. Many people also believe that the World 7 music of Mario & Wario sounds similar to the Route 24 and 25 track heard in the first generation of Pokemon games. Mario & Wario's imprint on the history of the Mario series is very small, and is very rarely mentioned in the West, if at all. The only references we could find in Western releases were in Super Smash Bros. Melee, Kirby Superstar, and Pokemon. In Melee, the description for the bucket trophy makes mention of the game and its goal. In Kirby, the bucket that falls on Mario's head is a collectible treasure, and in Pokemon Red and Blue, when examined, the Super Nintendo in the copycat's house in Saffron City states the game on the screen shows Mario with a bucket on his head. This reference was even carried forward to the game game's remakes Fire Red and Leaf Green. Bringing Mario and Wario to the West would have been a quick and easy process, as the game's text is already written entirely in English, so why was it never localised? The answer to why Mario and Wario never made it to the West may lie in the game's sales figures. The title sold relatively poorly in Japan. This was likely related to the underwhelming sales of Mario Paint, which also used the Super Nintendo mouse peripheral. Mario and Wario sold roughly 500,000 copies in Japan, over 200,000 less than Mario Paint in the region. To give 
some perspective, Super Mario World, which came out three years prior, sold three and a half million units in Japan alone. Since the game required the SNES mouse to function, the game would also need to be sold at a higher price if it were bundled with the peripheral. In Japan, Mario and Wario was sold bundled with the mouse for 9,500 yen, which in 1993 was about 100 US dollars. Since most SNES games were $50 at the time, this would have been a hard sell in the US market. Evidence shows that the game almost did receive a release outside of Japan, however. A preview for the game can be found in the September 1993 edition of Nintendo Power, which compared the game to Lemmings. Kellogg's Serial also ran a competition that showed the box art of Mario & Wario among its prizes, though within the entry form, no publishing date had been set, and the game simply had an estimated release of 1994. Did you know? The idea for Chrono Trigger came to Hironobu Sakaguchi during a trip to the United States. Sakaguchi, who was traveling with Yuji Hori and Akira Toriyama for graphics research, wanted to create a game that was something completely new. This new game was planned as the start of a franchise, which gave the team more creative freedom than if they were working on a new Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy title. They ultimately decided to make Chrono Trigger stand out by balancing dark and more lighthearted story elements. Dreams were a recurring element throughout the development of Chrono Trigger. The game's development nickname was The Dream Project, referencing the name of one of the game's endings where the player could meet the game's developers. The heads of the game's development team were even known as the Dream Team, comprised of Hironobu Sakaguchi, Akira Toriyama, Yuji Hori, Nobuyu Matsu, and Kazuhiko Aoki. These five are the last developers encountered in the Dream Project ending. Yasunori Mitsuda also told 1UP.com that he based much of the soundtrack on melodies he heard in his dreams. The ending theme in particular was composed from a number of dream melodies. Mitsuda worked so intensely on the game's soundtrack that he developed a stomach ulcer, requiring Nobuyomatsu's help in order to finish the job. The team thought that a party of entirely human characters wasn't very exciting and wanted to add an animal as a party member. The team went through a few possible ideas, including a monkey and a pig. Toriyama overheard the debacle and handed in a concept for a frog party member, a concept that stuck with the team. After Chrono Trigger's release in Japan, a player's guide containing the concept art of each party member was published. While Chrono, Luca, and Frog stayed faithful to their original designs, Magus went through a few different armor designs. Marley also had what the guide described as a Robin Hood-esque appearance early in production. Robo was redesigned to appear more human, and Ayla didn't originally have curly hair. Also included was a character simply named Old Man, implying that Gaspar might have originally been intended to be a party member during the early stages of development. There are a few interesting pieces of unused data in Chrono Trigger, with the most famous being two pieces of unused music. The music was published on the game's official soundtrack and includes a secondary battle theme, as well as a theme for an unused dungeon called Singing Mountain. The dungeon was planned to be explored between defeating Magus at Fiendlord's Keep and exploring the Tyrannal Lair, and it would have existed in prehistory. Singing Mountain consisted of waterfalls on the outside and lava caves on the inside, though the dungeon's purpose is unknown. In an interview with Procyon Studio, Yasunori Mitsuda stated, 
There was a dungeon where that song was used, but because the dungeon didn't contain much and there were no conflicts or anything that advanced the game, it was cut. So inevitably, the song was cut with it. Six unused enemies exist within Chrono Trigger's code, though each of these sprites are used outside of battle on at least one occasion. If hacked into the game, most of these enemies do not have proper stats and will either do nothing at all or resort to normal attacks. Interestingly, one of the unused enemies is the robotic biker Johnny. He's unique in that he has an actual stat build, indicating that Johnny may have been intended as a boss. Like many games of its time, Chrono Trigger's cartridge contained hardware to detract players from using pirated games. If the game detected that it was a bootlegged copy, it would lock the game whenever the player attempted to travel through time. This left the game on an infinitely looping time travel animation, rendering it impossible to play. The same method of anti-piracy was even reused in the DS remake. Chrono Trigger's English translation made an interesting number of changes to the game. The name of Magus's henchmen were Soyasu, Mayonnaise, and Vinegar in the Japanese version, referencing the condiments Soy Sauce, Mayonnaise, and Vinegar. These were changed to Slash, Flea, and Ozzy in the English game. The names are allusions to rock and roll musicians Saul Slash Hudson of Guns N' Roses, Michael Flea Balzeri of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and John Michael Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath. Another significant difference is that Frog's personality was changed dramatically from the Japanese version, where he didn't have his signature old-fashioned speech pattern, instead speaking in a much more direct and daring manner. One of the attractions at the Millennial Fair, Norstein Beckler's Tent of Horrors, contains a few notable references. Upon entering the tent, Beckler greets the party with a laugh that sounds remarkably similar to Kefka Palazzo's iconic laugh from Final Fantasy VI. <laughs> Two of Beckler's attendants, Biggs and Wedge, are also references to Final Fantasy VI, with the pair being named after two playable soldiers seen in the game's prologue. Biggs and Wedge's names, alongside Beckler's third attendant, Piet, are also a reference to Star Wars. They're taken from the characters Biggs Darklighter, Wedge Antilles, and Admiral Piet. Chrono Trigger and its sequel, Chrono Cross, were originally planned to have a stronger connection to each other. One example can be seen with the character Guile. Guile was originally intended to be Magus, but was redesigned to look less and less like him. In an interview with GamePro, Masato Kato stated that Chrono Cross's large number of playable characters made it impossible to portray Magus's relationship with Shala. Despite this, the DS remake of Chrono Trigger included a new ending where Magus discards his memory, only knowing that he's searching the land for something unspecified, similar to Guile's constant searching for mysteries. A game that expanded on the story of Chrono Trigger, named Radical Dreamers, released on the Super Famicom's Saddle of You service in 1996. Masato Keita wasn't happy with how the game turned out, however, and even called it unfinished. A desire to redo Radical Dreamers properly was actually what sparked the development of Chrono Cross. Chrono Trigger is considered by many to be one of Square's greatest games, inspiring a number of fan-made sequels and ROM hacks, as well as Chrono Resurrection, a 3D remake of Chrono Trigger. Development of Chrono Resurrection began in 1999, but the project attracted a great deal of attention when the project was revealed to the public shortly before E3 2004. Square issued a cease and desist order, shutting the project down just shy of its release. Fans protested, even demanding that Square Enix greenlight the remake, but Square Enix refused to change their decision. Though little is known about it, there may have been another Chrono series title in development. In 2001, Square Company registered the trademark Chrono Break. There's been no official comment on the trademark, but some developers have spoken about the possibility of another entry in the series. At E3 2003, veteran Square developer Hironobu Sakaguchi stated that Final Fantasy XI was taking up all their time, and they had no resources to delegate to another Chrono game at the time. And in 2005, director Takashi Tokita spoke about the possibility of a 
a direct Chrono Trigger sequel. At a 2014 PAX Prime panel, Sakaguchi said that he intended to continue the Chrono series with another game, but problems with Square Enix management prevented it from coming to fruition.